so thought I was going to trip. You were praying for me? Thank you. You know how scary that was. There's grape juice under there. You may not know that. Not the one that fell, but there's grape juice under there. And so this morning, I want to have a conversation, and it's going to be sometimes we don't always see on the inside what's really there. Sometimes we see what we think we see, and sometimes things look really good. So I talked about grape juice, and let's not spill any. That was close. So right here, I've got two glasses of grape juice. And these two glasses of grape juice look delicious to me. By the way, I love grape juice. I've loved grape juice since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. And I don't know. But sometimes I do this thing with the teenagers, and it hasn't been done in a while. And I don't know why I didn't do this when Wilson was here, because poor Wilson ate an Oreo one time. Well, we'll get to that later. It wasn't filled with Oreo stuffing, and he had no idea. But inside this grape juice, both these grape juice cups look like normal grape juice. But I will tell you that I've laced one of them with hot sauce. And so which one is it, though? Because they both look identical. The hot sauce wasn't enough that if I look in there, they still both look like grape juice. And so I'm having a tough time differentiating. And so after service today, I'm going to go put this table out as a teenager's opportunity to try which one is which. Because both look so similar and both look delicious and good that I know I can convince a teenager to drink this. It's not even a question. I'm a youth pastor. By the way, in case you don't know me, I'm Pastor Mike. I'm the youth pastor here at Casper First Church of the Nazarene. Derek and his family are out on vacation today, so you get me. And I'm a little bit hyperactive. And the Lord has blessed me this morning with a lot of extra energy to be able to preach. And so I praise God this morning that the Lord has given me that. But now you get to have it as well. And so not only did I do that, but then I had a little friend come visit me in the kitchen this morning, and I had an applesauce for her. And so I got to thinking, well, what if that applesauce wasn't just an applesauce? So one of these is applesauce, and one of these is mustard. So I used the empty one, and I refilled it. But they're in this container that I don't know which is which. They both look good to me. And I don't know which is applesauce and which is mustard. See, it's not always obvious from the outside which is which. And so, and then I brought up Oreos. Poor Wilson Stewart. Poor, poor Wilson Stewart. This is a plate of Oreos. Three of these Oreos, well, they have mustard in the middle. And so poor Wilson came to class one day and we were having a great conversation about Oreos and, you know, what's on the inside isn't always what it looks like on the outside, like we're having the same conversation here today, but it was a little bit different and we're going to go a little bit different direction. But Wilson doesn't like mustard, if you know Wilson. He despises mustard. He thinks the mustard was probably made from dirt. And he's not wrong, but it has a long process to get from where it is. But both of these have cream filling on each side. You can't tell by looking around there. And so I'm not going to eat them. Are you kidding? I can't even tell which one is which. And one of them is absolutely filled with mustard. And so who wants to bite into a mustard Oreo? 
Anybody looking forward? Oh, there's a couple hands. Oh, we got some mustard lovers. So for you, you may want the Oreos after service. So I'll put the table out there. And teenagers, you're so welcome to this table, right? You could have mustard applesauce, wherever that's at. Ooh, I can't even imagine. But right, things don't always, things aren't actually always what they are from what they look like on the outside. Sometimes things on the inside are very different from what they look like on the outside. So this morning in Pastor Mary's reading, she read this verse. And it happens to be verse 11 of what she was reading. So if we go over to Hosea chapter 8, verse 11, we get to read this. By the way, this isn't on the screen because I've already gotten ADD'd and jumped all around. And it's not in order on here. That's okay. I don't mind. But it says... Though Ephraim, by the way, Ephraim is a place named after a child. Um, Ephraim built many altars for sin offerings. These have become altars for sinning. And so as we're scrolling up to that, though Ephraim built many altars for sin offerings, they've now become altars for sinning. They looked like what you would expect a good religious community to look like. They were altars for sacrificing, right? They had flat tops. We're going to go into that here in a little bit. Everything looked right, but God noticed something was wrong. So that's where we're going to go today, but in any good situation, we should start at the beginning. So let's do that. Are you ready? You guys ready to come along with me on this journey? All right, here we go. So not everything as good on the outside as it seems or is not as good on the inside as it seems on the outside. I want to start in Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 6. So we're going to take time discussing what it looks like when our priorities get mixed up. We're going to uh, take a good look at the consuming forces that take us away from the good and perfect life. We're going to have a conversation this morning about idols and what idols get in our way in life, and what altars are meant to be for. So Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 6 says this, you shall have no other gods before me. That's right where it starts. We've heard this command before, right? We know that God has laid out that we should not have any other gods before him. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth, or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. See, but showing love to, those, to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. See, God, he recognizes exactly what good and perfect love is. He recognizes the purpose for the altar. He recognizes what's in our heart. And he, he gets excited. By the way, it says to the third and fourth generations, I'll punish for those who hate me. But for a thousand generations, I'll, I'll love those who loved me. Right? And so God, he gets a little excited too. I think that's where I get my excitement from. I'm sure it's from God, right? Because God gets excited when we worship him. When we do what we were created to do, God gets excited. 
But we are not supposed to put anything else before God. See, God, he's got this one thing. Well, he's got a couple. He's got this one thing. You can't put anything before him. He was your creator. By the way, if I made a nice, pretty clay sculpture and it came to life right here, and then it turned around and spit on me and ran off, I'd be frustrated. That's as close as I can get to thinking that I can be a creator, by the way. It would probably be a stick figure clay object. Let's just be honest. I have no creative ability. Okay? I can put mustard. By the way, I think that was a skill, being able to put mustard into a squeeze-go bottle this morning. All right. But so we need to define what in the world an idol is this morning. So what is an idol? Last year about this time, and I know you all remember it because you pay attention to every sermon that's ever given and you go back and watch them five times, right? Thanks, Riley. Yes. And so you all know, and so we give a sermon, we lay all kinds of things out up here on the stage and the platform. Sorry, Jay, I didn't call it a stage. But we laid all the kinds of things out here on the platform and we said, these all can take place of God. So we read in uh, Hosea that they had built a calf, a golden calf. And several times in scripture, we see the golden calf come up, but they had built a golden calf and that's what they were bowing down and worshiping. And in scripture, it says that that was made by a metal maker. Well, sometimes I think today that Apple has built the golden calf, right? But this right here is an inanimate object. This is neither good nor bad. This has no feelings, right? Well, I don't know, maybe Suri does. She tends to get her feelings hurt when I talk to her. But this is truly an inanimate object. But we can create it in our lives into something more than that if we choose. And we can make this then an idol where we worship. That if you take it away, we don't know what to do anymore. We can turn this into an idol. But when we do that, we take something and we put it before God. If we continue to use it as just what it is, a created object here on earth that gives us access to scripture, by the way, gives us access to Version Bible and connections. And you can call Facebook good or evil. I don't care what you call it. But Facebook may give you connections to uh, sermons. Uh, Pastor Jim Shade at another Nazarene church across town, I get to watch his sermons because of Facebook. So I get to get on there and see his sermons. That to me is a pretty good thing. You can get on there and rekindle an old romance when you're married, that seems like an awful bad thing. So all those things, right? It's an inanimate object. Depends on how you use it and how you worship it. If you're going to worship this before God, then guess what? You put something before God that is an idol. So now we've got idol. We need to review one more definition. And so I've got a couple definitions we're going to put on the screen. And it's the definition of an altar. And that's where we're going to spend our time today. So we know what the idols are in our lives. But we're going to talk about the definition of an altar. And so the Anchor, the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary defines an altar like this. The primary term for an altar in the Hebrew Bible is mizbah. It's used 400 times, which is derived from the root of, I'm just going to say Z-B-H. I'm, I don't speak Hebrew, guys. I'm, I'm incredibly sorry. Uh, or to slaughter. See, it's not a very pretty term when we realize what an altar really is, is to slaughter. Altars were constructed at places which were considered to have sacred character, points where contact between human and the divine could occur. And so we've got this really cool altar 
right here in Casper First Church of the Nazarene, and it's down here, and we come to this altar to pray. And so I want to talk about what it is that we do when we come to the altar today. By the way, I was looking at our altar, and it's probably the most beautiful thing in the world. Because of the character that it has, I'm looking at it from the top side here, and it's worn down, right? I look at the carpet in front of it, and you can see where knees have hit the ground in front of this altar. But why in the world do we kneel at an altar when we want to meet with God? What's the purpose of that? We're going to answer that question before we're done today. So an altar is a place of sacrifice, right? We read it's to slaughter, right? There has to be the sin, the blood to cover the sin. Well, luckily, I'm very thankful for this, that Jesus Christ came. And that's the message also this morning is that Jesus Christ came and he covered our sins with his blood if we'll only accept it. So we no longer have to take the lamb and put it at the altar. But also, it's a place of death. It's a place of finality. So why do we kneel at a place of death, a place of finality? Scripture also defines the altar. Like I said, we're going to come back to that. Scripture also defines the altar. So if we look at Genesis 8.20, it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, taking some of all the clean animals, the clean birds, and sacrificed them as burnt offerings on it. Genesis 22.9 says, When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Right? Because God had asked Isaac, or had asked Abraham, he said, take your son Isaac and go and sacrifice him to me. By the way, if you don't know the ending of the story, I'll give you a hint. Isaac does not die. Okay, God provided a ram in Isaac's place. He said, but because you have been so faithful to me, your generations will be like the stars. So, but that faithfulness, that altar was not anything that was, that was, what do I want to say? It was a happy place, but it wasn't. How's that? He was going to do what God asked him to do on the altar, but he was going to have to give up something to do it. So while it was a great place of worship, and it is still a great place of worship, you have to give up something when you're down here, or the altar doesn't make sense anymore. So as we continue on, so... You see, there's a place of an altar in our life is not just some place that we have a great remembrance or a good occasion. We can have a great remembrance, but that's not the sole purpose for it. I was reading several articles as I was preparing for uh, this sermon, and I just went ahead, so I, I had all my dictionaries, like I had the Yale dictionary out, and I'm looking at the different ways an altar is described, and I did not get to all 400 descriptions of altar in Scripture, but I sure read a lot of them. But I also read some commentary on Google of what an altar was in the modern day world. I wanted to know what the common thought was. And so I'm reading this one definition. You know how Google is. It'll just throw a definition up there for you. And so it says it's a good, that an altar is a good place, a meeting point um, that represents that you can come back to. I'm like, oh, that's kind of nice. But it doesn't seem like the full impact of the altar to me. I'm like, where was that source from? And I read down, I'm, I'm looking for the little URL in there. It's mystic theology. Oh, well, so in mystic, so our most modern term is just people want to make it into a good place to meet. 
right? A good place to meet God or whatever spiritual entity that, I don't know where they were going, but a good place to meet. And while it can be that, the altar is so much more than that. The altar in scripture meant that you were going to have to give up something. By the way, if you raise sheep in here or you raise any animals at all, and you have to take the best one and not reap the rewards from it, but go to give it as a sacrifice, you've lost out on something. Not only lost out on the good meat, you lost out financially. You were going to have to lay something down on that altar that meant something to you and your family. In our scripture reading this morning, Mary read that very important part of Hosea, and we already read that, right? But it says in that verse 11 again, though Ephraim built many altars as sin offerings, they became altars for sinning. Because they had done all the right things with their actions, just like all these up here look good, but they weren't good at their core any longer because they were using them improperly. John 13, 34 through 35 says this, and this is what I think God really wants to drive home, and that's a new command I give you, to love one another as I have loved you so that you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So at the very core of this whole idea of working through the altars, Ephraim had lost its ability to love one another. They had lost their ability. They had gone to a set of rules, a set of looks, a set of, this is the way I want the outside world to perceive me. And through that, they no longer were doing the real things that God was asking them, even though it looked like they were. You might be sitting here this morning saying, but Pastor Mike, if we use the Bible like a set of rules, won't we be doing everything God wants us to do? If we just use it like a set of rules, won't God look at us as favorable? Because then we'll be doing all the right things. I want you to look at this with a different perspective. And that is, and by the way, I'm going to give three different examples of different things that we could be doing that would look like this in our modern day and time. Only one of these examples was derived out of any individual in this room, and that was me. And you'll know the one is the second one. I'll give you a hint, right? I'll use my own example. I would never use any of you as an example. So if this looks like your life, my many apologies. But this is just common examples that we may do. So some of us in here may have memorized verses. We may have memorized scripture this year. And by the way, phenomenal. I know some quizzers in here that memorize scripture like nobody's business. And we, those that had a chance to come to the quiz meet up here saw kids that were learning God's word and putting on their heart. And memorizing scripture is a good thing. But I'm going to tell you right now that if you memorize scripture and you go down to your other friend and you say, hey, I know 33 verses this year. How many do you know? And he said, well, I learned one. <laughs> You're nothing in comparison to me. You know what you've done? You destroyed somebody. You destroyed somebody and you didn't have the heart of God in memorizing that scripture. You must not have really truly read what that looked like. And what God would have done out of that heart space of memorizing scripture. Memorizing scripture is a good thing. But if you destroy people out of it, that's not the purpose of scripture. Here's the second example. There's the hint. This one's about me. I love cooking Wednesday night dinners. 
Oh, I love it. It gives me pure joy to be able to go and cook. But what if I get so caught up in the Wednesday night dinner that it feeds into my gluttonous addictions? I like tasting my food too. By the way, you don't get to eat it until I've tasted it to make sure that it's good enough for you. But what if it gives into my gluttonous addictions and I just want to eat more and more food? And I want to go just and, and not share anymore, right? What if it's all about me? That's something that I have to make sure that I don't do. Because if I do that, then I've lost what Wednesday night dinner was. I've lost the community side of Wednesday night dinner. It is no longer about feeding other people. It's about feeding me. And that's when it becomes ungodly. And if we do that, guess what? It's no longer a service to God. It's a service to self. Last one, one more example. I'm sure there's a hundred others. I've been reading more and more articles that are coming from individuals in our denomination that continue to divide deeper and deeper along the lines of music. And so there are articles all over Facebook and articles all over the internet and articles within our own Nazarene denomination that continue to divide divide deeper and deeper on music. Some of them, and I'm going to go to the extremes here, want music to look like the 1800s. Possibly during John Wesley's time, that was before then, but possibly further back to John Wesley's time. Some of them want music to look like an MTV special. By the way, I may sound old there. I don't know what the current MTV equivalent would be. So work with me there, okay? So some of them may look like the MTV special. And does it matter what the music really sounds like? There's going to be an appeal and a way to get a message out there to somebody, but does it really matter in the end what the music looks like? No, music is a worship to God. That's what it is. Anything that moves people's lips, brains, and hearts on worshiping God, that is worship. And that's what that music's designed for. And some people may need some good 1800s music to be able to get their heart, soul, and mind. And if it's what they grew up on, then guess what? It gets them moving. Sorry, worship pastor. I'm not picking on you. It gets them moving, right? It gets their spirit closer to God. Some people may need to hear that good beat of an MTV special. And that's what's going to get their heart moving and move them closer to God. Anything that moves them that way. But to divide along those lines makes it more about us and less about those that we're trying to reach. You see the place, you see the altar is a place to lay down sacrifices to God. Sometimes we get caught up in the process and lose sight of what it is or what it is or should I say what we're going to do to serve. We lose sight of it. I want to turn to Matthew real quick. Matthew chapter 5 verses 23 through 24. Sorry for the sword drill today. I just think that all of scripture is God breathed and I get all over it. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. See, the altar is a dangerous, wonderful place. It's a place where we're going to lay down our own selfish ambitions and ask God for what his purpose is on our life. As we begin to close out, I'm going to invite Jay and the worship team to come back up. But we're going to have a time 
at the altar today here in just a few minutes. But I want to give you this really real-world example that the altar right down here, as we see it today, has a flat surface on it. It's got this surface that we can come down here and we can put our burdens on it. And guess what happened when you put your burdens on it? Think of it like the lamb in the Old Testament. Think of it like the lamb. When you came and you put the lamb on it, after you put it on there, it was the priest's responsibility. It was no longer your lamb. It was going to cover your sins. It was going to cover what you had done. But it was no longer yours. And so if you come down here and you lay down a burden on this altar and you put it here, guess whose burden that is now? You've given it away and you don't get to have it back. That's God's. And he gets to burn it up. When you come down here and you put something that you need to confess on the altar, God says, if it's still in your heart and you haven't reconciled, leave it there. Go deal with it, then come back, right? Because you have to deal with it in person. But then you get to leave it here and God gets to burn it up. So as we kneel down here today, if you've got anything that you want to give to God, as we kneel down here today, I invite you not to pick it back up when you leave. I invite you to leave that sin, that burden, that transgression right there at the altar and let it stay there and walk away with the purpose that God has for you in your life. And that is to be able to move freely without that burden weighing you down and to do his will. Because by the way, what you will take with you when you leave something at the altar is a space in your life to do his will. So let's go ahead, enter into a time where we're going to maybe sing some songs here, hear some music, but let's enter into a time of reflection where we get to leave our burdens.